And so I'll now invite Ariel up to, uh, for scripture reading. Um, this is from Micah 4, 1 to 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into the plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. It's in your bulletin, and you can follow along. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and on all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I'll give a little bit of an introduction to myself, and we'll pray a little bit and get into more of the sermon. Uh, but my name's Gene Twilley, as as the bulletin says that I am, um, and I'm I work for an organization called the Coalition for Christian Outreach. I'm the Philadelphia area director, and we have uh, staff on a little over 20 campuses around Philadelphia, Scranton, some in New Jersey. 
Um, I met Robbie through mutual friends. We're part of the same Presbyterian, we're, we're a Presbyterian church and part of the same organization of, of churches. And Robbie and I have been able to hang out together some. And it, it's, been, it's been mostly okay, I guess, if you know Robbie. <laughs> um, but my wife and I have lived in and around Philadelphia for over 11 years. We moved here from Alabama, and when we moved here, I was working for a large insurance company. I was doing consulting and education for them, training for them, and uh, eventually I quit there to go to seminary full-time and went to a, a school called Westminster that's just north of the city in Glenside. Um, while in Philly, we were members of a church that was a lot like this, and it was right outside of UPenn. Uh, University of Pennsylvania and University City. And so while we were there, um, I I was involved in college ministry there. Um, Part of my story is that I came to Christ through a college ministry while I was a freshman at a small liberal arts university in Alabama. I work in college ministry. And so what you guys are and where you guys are is something that I love. I love what you're trying to do, being a presence um, here in Westchester and a college town being a community of people who are shaping your lives around Jesus. Um, And so whether you're somebody who's here this morning and who's trying to figure out what this church thing is all about, what Christianity is all about, or or whether you're somebody who's pretty familiar with it, um, I'm excited that you're here, and I'm excited to be here with you. We're all coming today, then, with some sort of expectation. And maybe you did expect Robbie to be here. And we both wear glasses, but I'm a little darker than Robbie. My hair is a little darker. I'm a little bit more Asian than Robbie is. <laughs> so we're coming with expectations. But maybe beyond that, and, and more seriousness, we, we expect to hear something about God today. We expect to hear from God today. Our expectations are shaped by our experiences, by our biases. We have expectations that are both also shaped by and that are shaping of our wants and our desires and our hopes And as people who are in this church context this morning, one of the questions we should wrestle with is simply this. How does our expectation of who God is and what he does affect the way we relate with him and with the people around us? Even a simpler way to say this, how do our expectations of who God is affect the way that we live? So let's pray. Having that in hand. Great God in heaven, we we do come with expectations. Some of us come with baggage this morning. Some of us come with questions. Some of us come with doubts. We pray that you would meet us in those places where we have expectations. We pray that you would meet us where we have doubts. We pray that you would meet us where we have joy. And that in all of those meetings and all of those visitations by you, that we would be changed by the message of Jesus, that we would be changed by your spirit, that we would be changed by your grace. It's in Christ's great name we pray. Amen. Our text this morning gives us a little glimpse of what it looks like and what it means to interact with God, who is willing to challenge and even break our expectations. Here's a little background to the book of Acts, if if you don't already know about it, a little background to what we read this morning. Acts was written by a guy named Luke. Um, Luke is writing to somebody named Theophilus, and Theophilus is, literally means uh, the beloved friend of God or beloved of God. Luke also wrote another book in the New Testament called Luke. He's very creative in his naming. So it's the Gospel of Luke, the good news of Luke. 
And he starts, he starts this morning what we read with this. You all know those things you heard about Jesus. Or, well, when he was writing to Theophilus, he's, he's saying this. You, you know all those things that you've heard about Jesus. You know all those things that you've heard about his people. You know all those things that you've heard about him doing and saying, the way that he's acted, the way that he's spoken. Well, this is their story. You've heard these things, but let me tell you more of the story. Let me tell you, tell you what I've heard from the people verbatim. Let me tell you what I've experienced as I've lived life with them. Um, one theologian writes that Luke, Luke is writing what's called a, a historiography that treats the theme of how the new community, this new community, is rooted in God's old promises, the Lord Jesus' current activity, and the Spirit's effective presence. Basically, that, that there's this bigger story that this community is rooted in. And that same, same theologian says that Luke was an innovator in seeing that the story of the earliest community was worth telling in connection with what Jesus had done. And so if you were to pick up the Gospel of Luke, if you were to read through it, and read through the book of Acts, you'd see a progression of events. You'd see things sort of unfolding, things coming to fruition. There's a young man named Jesus, and he says that his purpose is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 4. And as his story unfolds, we see that the kingdom of God is not just this conceptual thing, but that the kingdom of God is, is already coming, but it's not yet here altogether. Like It's unfolding, that it's on its way, but it's already here in Jesus Christ. And if we read further, we'd see that Jesus himself, as he's telling the story about the kingdom, is also the king of that kingdom. He's the son of God. He's the king of that kingdom. So when we get to Acts, the story moves past tribalism. Christianity has roots in Judaism. Jesus Christ is Jewish himself. But the book of Acts presses against the expectation that Judaism was meant to stay in Jerusalem and a ge- within a certain geography, within a certain ethnicity, Acts shows us that Jesus Christ is actually meant for the life of the world, that he's meant for more than just beyond this one place. Underlying the book of Acts, then, is this assumption that we know the events that happened in the book of Luke. And so if you don't know those events, I've already mentioned some of them, but if you don't know them, go back and read it later. Um, if you get bored enough, you can read it now. Just pull it up on your app and read through Luke while I'm preaching. I won't be offended. So if you ever watch a series on television or on Netflix and you come to the next season of things, you often get a blurb at the beginning that says, last season, this and this and this happened. And this is really how Acts starts. The book of Acts is saying, I wrote you this other book, and this and this and this happened. Luke begins here. In the first book, I dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. Luke goes on to write that Jesus appeared alive to the disciples, that he spoke about the kingdom of God, that, um, that there were promises of the Holy Spirit to come, and there were promises of a different kind of baptism than what John the Baptist was providing. The book of Acts is presenting a narrative to us about the birth of this new kind of community, as we've already mentioned, that finds its essence and purpose in the person of who Jesus Christ is. As I mentioned in the quote earlier, Luke is shaping this story around the person and the work of the living Jesus. Is that our expectation of what church is? Is our expectation that church is shaping a life of a community around the living Jesus Christ?
A nice thing about being relatively new is that you don't have a lot of traditions that you have to, to keep. So there aren't things where you say, we've, already done, we've always done things this way and we have to keep doing it. And, and that's kind of similar to this, this new community in Jerusalem that's being formed, this community of disciples of Jesus. This sort of new creation community that Jesus is forming, uh, that the Spirit is empowering, that God has planned all along from the beginning, is something that would buck against traditional expectations. But there aren't a lot of expectations of what it should be, there are Jewish expectations of what it should be. And, and this is where, where Jesus, when he, when he visits with these people, is just pushing hard against that. This new community in the book of Acts is shaped around a person, around Jesus Christ, but he's more than just a person. As the New Testament gives glimpses into his life, we see Jesus was the son of a virgin, and he was adopted. He was the adopted son of a carpenter that Jesus lived in relative obscurity until he was in his 30s. And in the first century, people um, would live maybe to 45, 55. People thought that the, that the end of life you could live was 65 years old. And so Jesus is over middle age by the time he's entering into ministry. He's lived in obscurity. The writers of the New Testament show that Jesus loved the poor, but he also loved the rich. He sat down and ate with the rich. He reclined with them. Jesus was a religious leader who hated the religious hypocrisy of the day. He showed mercy and kindness to prostitutes on the one hand, and on the other hand, he preached and he, te- and he taught in such a way that people walked away saying, this man preaches with more authority than we've ever heard before. So he's more than a person. Jesus has a power over the wind and the waves. Jesus has a power over sickness. He's able to heal people, touch them without becoming sick himself. Jesus has a power over death. He raises people from the dead. He gives sight to the blind. He calls people who are lame to get up and walk and even forgives sin. And maybe compared to the rest of that stuff, that last part seems like, well, I mean, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. But if you were to take the whole Bible, if you were to look at what it says, you'd realize that all these things, commanding nature, commanding death, commanding life, forgiving sin, that these are only things that God himself could do. From a Jewish perspective, these are only things that God is able to do. So Jesus is more than a person. You can't just come to this and say, oh, that's, that's kind of nice. Isn't that nice what Jesus said? Isn't it nice what Jesus did? Because the way that the Bible portrays it, we have to either say, this is crazy, that, that we can't accept a man like this, or we have to say, this man must be more than a man, this man must be God. Is that who you expect Jesus to be this morning? Is Jesus in his life and in his work and in the things that he says, is this who you expect God to be this morning? The good news of the kingdom of God, which we generally short, uh, shorthand in English as gospel, it's something that you might hear Christians talk a lot about. Maybe it's something that you talk about yourself. Maybe it's a word that you use yourself. But the gospel of the kingdom of God is this great big idea. And in short, according to that gospel, we're, we're created things. We're created from dust. Um, some of you who are older maybe remember Carl Sagan saying something along the lines of we are made of the stuff of stars or star stuff. Neil deGrasse Tyson has said uh, we are all stardust. 
And sometimes I think whenever Christians hear that, they'll, they'll bristle and say, well, are we really? But, but the interesting thing about Scripture is, in the beginning, God just took the dust. We are just dust. But we're also more than dust, because what God does is he shapes that dust into his image, and he breathes life into it. So in some sense, we are just like the stuff of everything else. But in another sense, we are uniquely different because we carry and we project and we reflect the image of God into the universe. We were created to live in relationship with God and with one another, even though we're just created of the stuff. But, but anybody in this room, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you'll understand that there's something terribly wrong here. There's some terrible evil in the world. We don't live in relationship with God as we should. We don't live with other people in relationship like we should. And from the Christian perspective, we'd say, yeah, that's right. Evil does exist. Bad things happen. Sin happens. We sometimes victimize people. Sometimes we are victimized by other people. Mankind, in the very beginning, because of sin, is exiled from the presence of God. And it's not just that one sin. There's not one of us in this room that lived a perfect week this week. And if you are a person who did, you are amazing. That's, it's, but it's unlikely. It's really unlikely that any of us lived a perfect life this week. In fact, it's impossible. And what the gospel is all about is how God himself is working God himself is working to reconcile us to himself. He's working to reconcile that relationship. And so if your expectations this morning are to be here to hopefully pile up good things for yourself in relationship to the bad things yourself, maybe you've got this portfolio of good things and bad things and you're trying to cut your losses, it's not going to be enough. Our expectations, if that's our mindset, is that God is not as great as he says he is and that our sin is not as bad as he says our sin is. And really, if we were to come and sit down and talk about it, if we were to talk about God's grace, we'd probably realize that our sense from that perspective is that grace isn't as gracious as God says it is. If your expectations this morning are to be here to make yourself presentable to God or to pile up lots of good things in your life to outdo the bad things, then you can't. I can't. None of us can. If you're wondering if it's possible then to sin too much, to get away from God, then also you can't. God's grace is bigger than that. The gospel of the kingdom of God is that Jesus, then, is everything that we can't be. He is the good son. He is the one who forgives sin. He is the one who doesn't sin. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what that essentially means is that your sin never outruns God's grace. God is working out this reconciliation to himself for us. And that's the core of what's shaping this first century community. That's the core of what should be shaping every community that follows that, who says that we follow Jesus Christ. If you're someone who's looking into the faith this morning, the good and gracious God invites you into that community. He invites you into relationship with himself. He invites you into relationship with his people. God invites us to live not only knowing that he exists, but knowing that true life, real life, only exists when we live in conversation and communication with him. Our life following after Jesus doesn't make sense also if he wasn't resurrected. And as Jesus was there in the flesh, as the text tells us, he appeared to the disciples as alive. He communicated that his work wasn't done. 
Christ's resurrection also screams that death and suffering are not the end of the story. Your pain and your suffering are not the last word. Recreated life is. Life reconciled in relationship to other people, life reconciled in relationship with God, that, that is what carries us forward. But what ends up happening in, in Acts 1-6 is this. The disciples come together and they ask, okay, is this, is this a time now, is this right now when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And there's no more explanation that Jesus gives. He's, he's done explaining the good news of the kingdom of God. There's no more teaching or unfolding of the story. And Jesus basically says, that's none of your business. That's my business. That's the Father's business. He said, what is your business is I'm going to give you the Spirit And you're going to be empowered to take the message of this good kingdom, of this good king, into the rest of the world. And and then he flies away. Right? This is the ascension. And it's really, it's it's funny to me. Uh, It's on the surface, I I think it's comedic gold because Jesus is basically dropping the mic and he's saying, see you later. You go figure this out. But he's not just saying that because he's saying he's going to send the Spirit. But let's talk about the disciples' expectation there. Let's talk about what they expected. Why would they ask that? And and this is where we get maybe a little bit more serious about it, that it's not just comedy. First century Jews thought they were special, and they were. They were God's chosen people. They were living under military occupation, though. They were people who were an ethnic and a religious minority, They were probably tired of being marginalized. And if you read through the New Testament, you'd see the ways in which they were being marginalized as a religious and ethnic minority. And the unfunny part of the question is this. Jesus, are you going to end suffering now? Jesus, are you going to bring the promise of new life now? Jesus, you experienced yourself. You see what we're going through. Is this when you're going to end it? And isn't that the same thing we'd ask? Isn't that the same thing that we ask? When you bear any weight of any kind of of deep suffering, don't we cry out to God, when are you going to end this? What do we expect from God in those moments? And what happens when those questions burn deep in our guts and we're, we're left with silence? Or we're left with Jesus disappearing, or what we think is Jesus disappearing. What the disciples expected wasn't a bad thing to expect. They wanted suffering to end. It didn't, it just didn't anticipate the trajectory of God's own expectations for himself, of the Spirit's expectations for himself, of what Jesus meant when he talked about the Spirit of God and when he talked about the kingdom of God. And I think that most of us in this situation would have been similar to the disciples. As Jesus ascends, they're just standing there and they're looking. Because you have this friend who was killed less than two months ago. He comes back to life. He spends a little bit over a month with you. He's teaching you. You're excited. Because your understanding of who he is is that this is probably God in the flesh. And then he disappears again. Wouldn't we all just be standing there saying, okay, what now? What do we do now? But there's this promise that Jesus gave. There's this promise where he said, there's a hope that's coming that you are not going to be left alone. That my presence, that the presence of God is going to be with you. 
There's an immense significance to that promise. Because if you understand anything about the Jewish, the Jews' story, you might understand that God had designated a certain place and a certain city of where he would dwell. There's a certain room in the temple, and that temple was in Jerusalem, and he said, that's where my presence is going to be. But, but as we understand that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, what ends up happening is that the presence of God is taken out of the temple, and it's put into the streets of Jerusalem. And that's crazy. The presence of God is walking around the streets of Israel from town to town. And even more than that, this promise of going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth is this promise that the presence of God is going to reach out into all the earth. And and as a Jewish person, you'd understand, yeah, God is meant to be king of the world. But it's clear that sin is, is, is evident, that brokenness is evident, that suffering is evident. And instead of coming down and reigning right now, what he says is, the job's not done yet. The presence of God needs to go out from here, and it needs to cover the earth. Even more than that, if you're a first century Jew, there's something else going on here. When Jesus says it's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, all of a sudden he's talking about broken relationships, and he's talking about enemies. The, the city or the, the area of Judea is also Judah. And in around the 10th century before Christ, Israel and, and Judah were split. They had two different kings. They had two different identities. And now all of a sudden, Jesus says, Jesus says, but my presence is going to be there. And it's also going to be in Samaria. And if you know anything about the Samaritans, they, they basically had this sort of um, bastardized Judaism. They were heretics. That's, that's how the Jewish people saw them. And, and God says, and I'm, I'm going to send you there too. And he says, not only that, you're going to go out into all the world. And, and most of us in here, I don't, I don't know all of you, but my guess is that most of us are not Jewish. And we would be seen as dogs, at least in this context. We would be seen as unclean. And God says, my presence is going to be there too. And so there's this expansion that Jesus is talking about, that the Spirit is going to take you into the places that you never wanted to go and the places that you never wanted to be to the people that you never wanted to talk to. Is that our expectation of what the Spirit does? Is that our expectation of who Jesus is? And this is hard, because people fail our expectations. We live in all kinds of broken types of relationship. We fail others in their expectations of us. But in the midst of this potential disappointment, Jesus is actually saying to his disciples, you need to expect more of me. You need to expect more of the Spirit. Because if we go out, and and all of us probably have people that we don't agree with, and if we try to fix things ourselves, maybe you've tried this, it doesn't always turn out well, does it? I mean, sometimes sometimes it does. Sometimes we say, well, we'll just agree to disagree. Um, But that's kind of lame, isn't it? Real reconciliation is love. And do, can we love our enemies? Can we shape our lives around this kind of love without, without God being present? In the midst of potential disappointment, Jesus is saying again, you need to expect more of me. You need to expect more of what I'm going to do. Because mankind was meant to flourish. Sin stops that. Mankind was meant to be fruitful and multiply, and sin stops that. But the Spirit of God makes it happen. 
And new creation life and new creation communities, the Spirit of God makes it happen. It's a recapitulation of what God promised in Genesis at the very beginning, but it's also a recapitulation of what we just read in Micah this morning as well. The house of the Lord, the place where God dwells, was going to be higher than any other mountain. God was going to be raised up higher than any other place. The house of the Lord was going to be raised up higher than any other place. And in that, he was going to sit as as judge, but he was going to judge in such a way that people could destroy their weapons of warfare. Right? Your swords and your spears are going to be turned into pruning hooks and plowshares. And so, weapons of warfare are turned into tools of, of peace and prosperity. And the picture that Micah the prophet gives us is one that breathes out peace and goodness and abundance into this world because the God who is worshipped is also described as a God who reigns over what is good. And the expectation of our hope as Christians isn't that we'll meet Jesus in in heaven then. We want to meet Jesus. We want to meet with God. But Jesus said he's going to come back. The thing that we pray is come back. The hope is that he's going to come back to earth and remake these things, remake these weapons of warfare into weapons of good, or not weapons of good, but tools of good. And by the way, as Christians, as people who who engage with, with just the world and the places that we work, this should give you a lot of hope in the work that you do. That that it's not meaningless, that it's not just drudgery, and I know sometimes we feel that way, but that 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 God's going to refine that that God's going to take your work and he's going to give it even more meaning, but that it has meaning right now. And so if you're struggling with that, Jesus says that your work matters. There's a building up of culture and of progression towards peace and beauty that we're called to as followers of Jesus. And when we partake in acts that bring the peace of God to bear on earth, when we partake of acts of mercy and of beauty and of goodness, we, we are being witnesses to the work of Christ. So there are our works, our acts, the things that we do. When we look for the peace in our relationships of strife, when we relate and speak to other people about the goodness of God, about the hope that Jesus provides, we are being witnesses to who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And the thing that makes that as effective is the empowerment of God through his spirit. And like the theologian I quoted earlier said, the only way that any of this makes sense, the only way that any of this really matters is when, that, when our community, when the, the community that, that we're in here right now is shaped around the living, the resurrected Jesus Christ. The only way this becomes effective is when we're united with one another to do well to our neighbors, to speak to, of the hope of the, that the goodness of Christ brings, to speak of the justice that Jesus brings, precisely because that's what the Spirit of God empowers us to do. It only makes sense if Jesus is resurrected. It only makes sense if he sends his Spirit. And so after Jesus ascends, the question that's posed to the disciples is, why are you still here? Jesus will come back in the same way he left. That is, Jesus will come back in his own time. He'll come back when he's ready to come back. He'll bring the reign of God when the Father tells him to. Broken expectations of the kingdom coming now, the expectations that the disciples have, these broken expectations of the kingdom coming now are reformed 
into expectations of the presence and peace of God going out now. Not coming down, but going out by the Spirit. Has God broken your expectations recently? Have there been things that you've expected of God? Is he maybe saying to you, you're not expecting enough of me? In the absence of God in the flesh, the disciples go back to Jerusalem and they pray. We won't get into it, but the Spirit comes down as they're praying and it catalyzes this movement, which some of you are probably familiar with, where, where the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, goes all around the world. It goes all around the Roman Empire. The rest of the book of Acts is a depiction of what happens when we wait on God, when women and men of God pray that the Spirit will come in power. As followers of Christ, we're called into that kind of waiting. We're called into the kind of waiting that seeks for God to change our expectations of himself and of ourselves. Waiting on God is living in communication as a community with him. We hear from him and we speak to him. We read and pray together. And encountering the living God rearranges our expectations. We don't often expect enough from God, and, and often God's, God's purpose is to do a lot more from us than what we would have imagined. We're not called in order to gain the goodness of God by doing things for God, but we're called to do things for God because we've already gotten the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. And out of the overflow of that goodness, we're called, just like these disciples, if you're somebody who follows Jesus Christ this morning, we're called into, to go into the world, being empowered by a spirit, and inviting others into that same kingdom, inviting others into that same place, by going into Westchester, into Chester County, into Pennsylvania, into the world, being his witnesses. Do you know that call this morning? If you don't, we invite you to know him. There are people up front here that would love to, I'm sure, talk to you about what that looks like. I'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. To know the hope of his love and the joy of life with him and his people. So let's pray for that this morning and then, and then we'll, I'll introduce the offering. Great God in heaven, our, you are more than what we could expect. And often when we encounter you, our expectations are changed, they're broken, but only in the best ways. And so, God, we pray that today you would change our expectations, that you would help us to see that, that your mission, that your goodness, that your grace is much bigger than we would have ever imagined. And would you empower us to live as a people who love you, who honor you, and who take you into the ends of the earth. It's in the great name of Christ we pray. Amen.